Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 1, 2, and 6. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You may be seated. And as you're being seated this morning, let's pray together again. Heavenly Father, we confess this morning uh, that you are wholly unlike us, a holy other. You are the creator, we are your creation. And if not for yourself, uh, you're, you're revealing yourself to us. Uh, Lord, we would have no idea how to even approach you. Father, we thank you this morning that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have spoken to us. Lord, we ask this morning that now, on our end, you would give us eyes to see. Uh, ears to hear, and hearts that obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Christ City. A few of you are awake. That's good. Uh, hopefully that will get better as we go. Uh, this morning, uh, first off, I'm Jake. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you following the gathering. Uh, this morning, we're continuing in our fourth beatitude in a group of eight uh, or nine, depending on who's counting. These four, uh, these eight or nine statements that begin... Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And given that we're about halfway through these statements, today marks our halfway point through these statements, uh, it's helpful to maybe remind ourselves of some ground rules, uh, some things that we should be aware of as we uh, work uh, through these blessed are statements that Jesus begins uh, his sermon with. And and this morning, I want to remind us, because uh, I know my tendency, and I know some of your tendencies, uh, we cannot just sort of pick and choose uh, beatitudes as we would like them. Uh, if you're like me, uh, there are some on this list of blessed our statements uh, that are more appealing than others. Uh, some where I'm like, yeah, I-, I could get behind that. And others where I'm like, mm, I don't really want to do that. Uh, sometimes we read the beatitudes uh, like the spiritual gifts uh, we find later in Paul's letter. And we think to ourselves, well, you know what? There's that gift and that gift and that gift, but I don't actually have that, so I don't have to live into that. Whereas actually, I think we're supposed to live into the Beatitudes uh, like the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 5, where Paul describes a fully orbed follower of Jesus. In the same way, Jesus is describing a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in, in every component, in every aspect, wholly and totally devoted to him. Where no part of their life, intellectual, financial, or emotional, is outside of the reign and rule of God's kingdom. A kingdom that we've seen is breaking in, in part, and will one day come in full. This whole person's submission to God's kingdom, I think, has actually been really evident so far, if we have ears to hear uh, in our Beatitudes uh, thus far. See, if you think about it. Jesus has been sort of head-on addressing some core questions surrounding humanity. In the first beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus is answering the question, uh, Who am I? Who am I? And more specifically, Who am I in relation to my Creator? And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Here Jesus is answering the question, what truly ails me? What ails us as a community? What's wrong with the broader world? 
And last week, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We saw that Jesus is answering the question, what is truly valuable? What is worth pursuing? What should I live my life for? But he's not finished. This morning, our beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, seeks to answer another fundamental human question. And this time... The question surrounds our topic of longing, of longing. What does someone gripped by Jesus's kingdom love and desire? What should kingdom citizens long for? See, the basis of Jesus asking this question, if you want to go a bit deeper, is actually seen later in the sermon. This is really foundational for us where he'll tell the listeners, he'll tell the crowds, and he'll tell us today that that the control center of why we do things is actually our heart. It's our heart. We do things on the basis of what we love or what we desire. Jesus says uh, that specifically later, he'll connect this desire between our love of money and us serving the master of money. Uh, Look at Matthew 6, 21 and 24 with me. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, if we're being very honest, we are living here in Vancouver, right? Nod your head if you're still with me. You don't know where you are, maybe, this morning. We're in Vancouver. Uh, We're in Vancouver. It's the 21st century. We're not used to talking about being controlled or directed or, or... manipulated uh, by our desires. Uh, We consider ourselves, don't we, uh, to be beyond that. We've advanced beyond that. We are post-enlightenment, rational people who who think, and we think very highly of ourselves in this way, uh, who think that we make decisions based on logical and and cold calculation, don't we? Why did I do that? Well, because I had a plan. And why did I do that? I had another plan, right? I I just act my plan, and, and I just do it, and I'm a logical being. Now, I think that's true at times. I think that's true at times. There are moments where we live purely based on logic. For example, maybe you were driving home last night and you came to an intersection and your house was west. Your house was west. And so, logic would tell you that you turn west at that intersection. You go that way. Sometimes we do make decisions purely based on logic, on on reason. But what if we go a bit deeper? What if we were to take that silly example of turning west to get home and unpack that a little bit? If we think, uh, if we peel back the layers of our decisions, we find that foundationally, all of our decisions, all of them, and I really believe this, flow back to a desire, a love, a longing for a particular vision of the flourishing life. So on one level, turning west simply leads you to the neighborhood where your house is. But on a much more foundational, below-the-surface, less superficial level, your house is in that neighborhood because of some combination of your desires. A desire for giving your family a certain life. A desire for giving your spouse a a, a shorter commute so you can spend more time together. A desire to have a backyard because you grew up uh, with a backyard. We are desiring creatures when I think we peel back the layers and and see that. This morning, Jesus wants to show us what a citizen of the kingdom of God will desire. 
will love, will long for. And the answer might surprise us. The answer is kind of a strange one. It's righteousness. Righteousness. And if that makes no sense to you, uh, join the club. Uh, Here's how I want to unpack this fourth beatitude this morning. Ready? Righteousness defined. Righteousness desired. And righteousness satisfied. You thought there was another D there, didn't you? No, just two Ds and one S word. Righteousness defined. Righteousness desired and righteousness satisfied. Are you with me, Christ City? Are we awake this morning? Let's go. Righteousness defined. Here we go. In introducing the word righteousness in this beatitude, Jesus is introducing uh, one of the key themes of the Sermon on the Mount. Key, key theme. And actually, if you haven't yet picked up a Sermon on the Mount book at the back, uh, I'd encourage you following the gathering, go, get one. It's five bucks. Uh, We have a whole bunch of terms defined in there. And righteousness is a term that we want to understand. In fact, that we need to understand. And if we miss the definition of righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, in this context, uh, we'll miss a whole bunch of the sermon itself. See, for many of you, I think for for a lot of us who are new to the the church, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, the Bible, maybe you hear the word righteousness and you immediately think of something really negative, right? Like someone who is self-righteous, right? Someone who is holier than thou, someone who looks down on other people. You know, they're a righteous person, they're spiritual, they're above, they look down their nose at others. Uh, Maybe you hear the word righteous and you think, you know, entirely uh, in in the negative. If you are familiar with the Bible, maybe you know that this term righteousness, uh, it differs uh, even between the authors who use it throughout the scriptures. Uh, Depending on what author is using it, it dictates its meaning. For example, if you were with us this summer in our pre-launch phase, before we were here and before there were chairs to set up and before, you know, things were, you know, a bit uh, chaotic on Sunday morning and we just, you know, kind of showed up at three o'clock and it was nice, maybe just for me. If you were here in this pre-launch phase, you know that we were in Proverbs, right? And in Proverbs, the righteous person, do you remember? This is a test. The righteous person does what? Disadvantages themselves in order to advantage the other. Courtney knew. She shook her head. She knew that. Thank you, Courtney. The righteous person disadvantages themselves in order to advantage the other. In Proverbs, righteousness is this horizontal reality, this horizontal thing. It it refers to how we interact uh, as a community, as people, and those outside of these walls. It's a very horizontal relationship thing. But you know this if, if you know your Bibles. You know that when the Apostle Paul speaks of righteousness, he's talking about something different than what the author of, of Proverbs is talking about. He's talking about yours and I, uh, our right standing before God. Uh, the term there for Paul is this legal term. Uh, that means uh, being declared innocent or, or not guilty before God. And so it's not horizontal in Paul's letters. It's vertical, right? That we can be in right relationship with, with, with God. We have these two different meanings throughout the Bible. Interestingly, as we consider the Sermon on the Mount, we find that as Jesus employs this term righteousness, he has a foot both in Proverbs uh, and in Paul's letter. He has a foot in both uh, camps. So let me give you a definition of righteousness, and then we're going to unpack that from there. In the Sermon on the Mount, we can define righteousness this way. Uh, This definition comes from Jonathan Pennington. He's a scholar. He's much smarter than I am, and you should be thankful uh, for that. Jonathan Pennington, he says this about righteousness. He says, righteousness 
is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. It is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Now that's a lot of words and it sounds pretty technical. Let's unpack that. Uh, To do that, I want us to go to a a familiar scene. Uh, You might know, and if you don't know the Bible, uh, let me tell you, uh, one of Jesus' favorite opponents in the Gospels, one of his favorite combatants, are, are the Pharisees, are the religious leaders, right? Jesus loves to engage those religious leaders of his day. Now, here's what we do. We, we take Jesus, and we make Jesus the original punk rocker, right? He's sticking it to the man, you know? Jesus with his, you know, leather boots on, and he's, you know, tough, and he's, you know, anti-authoritarian. He, you, know, you know, he listens to, you know, I don't know, I don't know punk rock, so you, you fill in the blank. But Jesus is, we make him the original punk rocker, right? This first century uh, Ferris Bueller, if you will, right? Who's anti-authoritarian, sticking it to the man. But if we actually look at, at the Pharisees and other religious leaders in that day, in its historical context, what we find is actually quite impressive. It, it, it's quite impressive. As far as righteousness goes, as far as righteousness was understood in Jesus' day, as strict observance of the law, uh, no one could compete with the Pharisees. No one could. The Pharisees were on a level uh, all their own, tithing uh, from their herb garden, right? Every word they spoke was carefully calculated. Everything they did carefully calculated according to a strict observance of the law and, and some other laws that they had sort of added to the law, right? They were the cream of the crop when it came to righteousness. And, and Jesus actually acknowledges this. This might surprise us. Jesus acknowledges that when it comes to righteousness in their day, uh, the Pharisees couldn't be beat. But later in the sermon, in the same breath that Jesus acknowledges this, he also says something that would have been very, very confusing. Uh, Look at Matthew 5, verse 20. And we'll encounter this verse in a few weeks. But there Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is like hearing, unless your basketball skills uh, exceed that of LeBron James and Michael Jordan, which I I feel like I'm fairly close, uh, unless they get there, that was a joke, I'm 5'11 white, (laughs) unless they get there, right, you'll never play in the NBA, or or you can never even play pickup basketball, right? Uh, This would have sounded very, very confusing, because who is more righteous than the Pharisees? Who's better than them? How could Jesus' disciples, you and I, kingdom citizens, have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? What is this greater righteousness that Jesus requires of his kingdom citizens? That's the question. The answer to that question leads us to the other great theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And the theme is this. Whole person discipleship. Whole person discipleship. Now, you and I are so used uh, to separating our external life and our, uh, our inner life, our internal life and our external life. We're, we're used to separating that. We do it so often, actually, that we do it like unconscious, unconsciously. We just do it without thinking about it. Let me give you a silly example. Uh, in a few months' time, uh, introverts, introverts, you just perked up, introverts will be forced, this is true, to attend Christmas parties. Right? And if you're with me right now, like a little part of you died. When you're already anxious, 
worried about that. Thinking of things to talk about. Introverts fantasizing about reading a book beside a roaring fire in a cabin uh, in the middle of an isolated mountain range uh, will be forced uh, to talk to people. They'll be forced to talk to people. And because they are adults, they will do it. They will smile. uh, They will ask thoughtful questions. And they will even pretend to laugh. But we know uh, internally uh, the souls of introverts will be withering away. And they'll be dying inside. And they'll be wondering how long they have to be here for, right? That's a silly example of that sort of internal-external split. Let me give you a more serious example. Every day, uh, husbands pat themselves on the back for being, quote-unquote, faithful. I'm a faithful husband. And in a technical sense, uh, they are. These men have not slept with any other woman. They have kept uh, their marriage vows. They have been sexually active with only one other woman. Now, do they at times fantasize about what life would look like with someone else? Sure. And do they stare longingly at women uh, who cross the street while their car is stopped at the light? Yeah, but, 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 but who doesn't? Externally, they will have the appearance of, of righteousness. They're quote-unquote faithful men. But their internal lives and our internal lives, however, tell a different story. What we're going to discover time and time again over the course of this time in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus has come to show, Jesus has come to call, and Jesus has come to empower us to live in a greater righteousness. A righteousness that is not just external stuff and external behavior, but extends all the way to our hearts, all the way to our desires, internal and external, this whole person discipleship. And the word that, that summarizes this in, this in the Greek is a word, uh, teleos. Teleos. It's on the screen behind me, teleos. Later in the sermon, Jesus says something really, really confusing. And maybe you've been confused by this as you read this text before. Jesus says this. You therefore must be perfect, or teleos, as your heavenly Father is perfect, or, 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 or teleos. Now, if you've read that before, you're like, I don't know who this is for, uh, because uh, I am me. And, and as my wife will tell you, uh, very, very far from perfect. In fact, if you meet me for four seconds, you'll, you'll know uh, very far from, from perfect. But this word teleos we find here in Matthew 5, 48 is probably better understood as you must therefore be whole or complete as your heavenly father is whole or or, or complete. And the idea here is that God himself is is without fracture, without divisions. He is wholly and completely righteous. There is not a single part of him that does not desire what is good and pure and lovely and beautiful. And we, as disciples of God himself, of Jesus, are also to be singular, of one mind, in totality, when it comes to our discipleship. Uh, Margaret Pement, she said this, The disciple is he whose dedication to God is total, single, Again, we'll see this theme of whole person discipleship later in the sermon. It's going to come up again and again and again. So if you're sick of me talking about it, you know, strap in. It's coming. But for this morning, it's enough to say that when Jesus talks about righteousness, 
When he mentions the word righteous in this fourth beatitude, he's talking about this greater righteousness that comes from our hearts and is shown in our action. It's this whole person righteousness. But we should ask at this point, who is this righteousness in relation to? Is it, like Proverbs, just a strictly relational thing? Right, me to you, or you to me. Or does that have to do with our relationship to God? Right, our justification before the holy God of the universe. Is it a communal thing, or a, a us and God sort of thing? And to answer that question really helpfully, I'll say that it's both. It's both of those things. Let me explain. It's my conviction, and you might disagree with me. In fact, I guarantee someone in here will disagree with me. It is impossible... Uh, to act rightly to other people, at least as God defines rightly, uh, if if we have been not if we have not been made right with the God with God Himself, it is impossible to act rightly with other people if we have not been made right with God Himself, and it can't be done. And the reason I say that is because the Pharisees tried really, 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 really hard and failed. They tried really hard. Like, much harder uh, than you are trying right now. I just want to put that out there. Uh, The Pharisees are much better public citizens than you ever will be. Uh, The Pharisees are much holier uh, than you ever will be. And and yet, they they could not overcome the obstacle of relating to one another well from, from a pure heart. They looked like a lot of talk on their end, but not a lot of practice. It looked like the Pharisees coming up with convoluted, convoluted rules about meaningless things. But Jesus will say later in the sermon, but they denied the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, faithfulness. It looked like the Pharisees putting on their Sunday best for temple, like suit, tie, the whole shebang. Then acting like a devil in their home with their family. What we need first before we even talk about me and you and you and me, what we need is to recognize that we need Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We need Jesus to take the wrath and judgment that we deserve in our place. We need Jesus to rise uh, from the dead in victory. We need Jesus to ascend to the right hand of the Father as our advocate. We need Jesus to send his Holy Spirit to give us a new heart. As Paul will say later, not just outward circumcision, but inward circumcision. Circumcision, Paul says, of the heart. Nothing, nothing matters horizontally if you and I are not first reconciled to the God of the universe. But from there, from reconciliation with the God of the universe, through the work of Jesus and Jesus alone, from there, we can begin to live rightly with one another. As a people, as a community, as a city. And you might ask, good question, what does that look like? What does that mean? We're going to spend all of January looking at the case studies that Jesus gives us, exploring what that righteousness with one another horizontally how it looks like. This morning, though, our text emphasis, the emphasis of this beatitude, is not on the nuts and bolts of the greater righteousness, but rather on whether or not you and I actually care about living it out. Whether or not we actually want this. That's the question this morning. Do you and I actually want this greater righteousness? So first, righteousness defined, now righteousness desired. Righteousness desired. 
Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher, a teacher, a, a great communicator of God's word uh, in his day. He, he preached in the 20th century in the UK, uh, all throughout London and, and in the countryside. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with a very helpful insight on this beatitude. If I can summarize, he says, what our culture uh, aims for, what they're headed towards, is not righteousness. Like, you probably heard righteousness for the first time this week here, right now. No one is talking about righteousness, right? What, what do we aim for? What do we want? Happiness, right? We aim for happiness, and righteousness is something else. It's an archaic religious thing. We aim for happiness. So we have movies like The Pursuit of Happiness, right? All of our economic uh, struggles, our psychologizing, why we meet with our counselors, our, our, our dieting, the food that we eat, is unanimously directed at the goal of what? Happiness. We long for and we love happiness. All the while... How does our beatitude read? How does it read? Look look at Matthew 5, verse 6 again with me. Blessed are those, happy are those, flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for what? Happiness? Flourishingness? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, what does this have to do with our desires? Any conversation around desires, our loves, our longings, has to begin with an acknowledgement that our desires on our own are fundamentally misplaced. They're, they're misplaced. Culturally speaking, our desires are, are misplaced. Individually speaking, our desires are misplaced. You and I love and thus pursue the wrong things. Listen to Lloyd-Jones speak once again. He says, We are not to hunger and thirst after blessedness or happiness. We are not to hunger and thirst after happiness. But that is what most people are doing. We put happiness and blessedness as the one thing that we desire, and thus we always miss it. It always eludes us. According to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. Whenever you put happiness before righteousness, Lloyd-Jones says, you will be doomed To misery. The disciple of Jesus seeks righteousness first, and with all that that word means, and from there finds happiness, flourishing, blessedness. But the average person just wants happiness, just wants blessedness, just wants the good life, just wants to flourish, and they work toward that goal. To put it another way, and we've said this before, if we're to poll the people in this neighborhood, the people around us, they want the kingdom. They want right relationship with one another. They want peace and harmony, right? Right? They want that. But they don't want the king. They want the kingdom without the king. And then when we pursue the kingdom without the king, what we find is we miss it altogether. Jesus is saying here, hunger and thirst after the king. His righteousness. Right relationship with him. And from there, blessedness, happiness, flourishing flows. And this morning, Christ City, the question is really simple. Really simple. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. What do you desire? What do you love? What would your bank account tell me you love? What would your schedule tell me you love? This is not an abstract thing. 
Right? You can probably think right now of three things that you're prone to loving before Jesus' righteousness. Probably more for being honest. What do you love, Christ City? Do you love right relationship with God and with others? Or do you love fleeting moments of worldly praise? Do you love right relationship with God and with others? Or weekends crammed with as many experiences and pleasures required to get you through to the next weekend? The next time off? The next vacation? Do you love and desire right relationship with God and with others? Or more stuff to squeeze into your closet, fill your garage, adorn your vacation home? Like, let's not pull any punches here. The follower of Jesus, this is not optional. The follower of Jesus desires righteousness above all else. And if you do not desire Jesus' righteousness above all else, you should have a hard conversation with yourself this morning. This is not a beatitude meant to skip over or just make light of. See, the good news here, if you're wondering when I'm getting to the good news, that guy's so mean. The good news this morning, as as Daryl Johnson says, Jesus comes, and by grace and grace alone, he comes and reforms your appetites. He comes and reforms your desires. He puts everything, our careers, our family, our food, our entertainment, everything, he puts it in its proper place, below and subservient to our desire for righteousness under our longing to be in right relationship with God and others. So he takes gluttony. Jesus takes gluttony, and he turns it into healthy enjoyment. Jesus takes parents who worship their kids. And he takes them, he makes them into parents who rightly relate to their kids as as their kids. Jesus takes workaholics, and he makes them into people who work hard, but who know work isn't everything who aren't devastated when when things go poorly. Jesus takes people who worship created things and he makes them into people who worship the creator. This is what it means to live in Jesus' kingdom. The righteous, Jesus says, hunger and thirst for this sort of reformation, for this sort of change. They hunger and thirst. Now here's where we're at a distinct disadvantage because the reality is as I survey this room right now, my guess is none of us have truly been hungry. None of us have truly been thirsty. Like, like maybe when we were doing that juice cleanse at one time or like did the keto diet and we're like, why no bread? Right? We were hungry then. Right? We were thirsty then. Right? Maybe, you know, we were, you know, I went a couple hours without water or something. But in Jesus' day, Hunger and thirst were real needs that people had to think about. There was no turning on the tap and drinking water. There was no heading down to the convenience store and getting a burrito. Not that you do that, right? I don't do that either. The hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about is the kind of hunger and thirst that if you do not eat in the next moment, in the next seconds, you will die. It is a a parts person in a desert. A hungry person crying out for something to eat, begging for food. Listen to one commentator on this. The hunger which this beatitude describes is no genteel hunger, which could be satisfied with a mid-morning snack or second breakfast. The thirst of which it speaks is no thirst, which could be slaked with a cup of coffee or an ice drink. It is the hunger of the man or the woman who is starving for food. 
and the thirst of the man who will die unless he drinks. Christ City, do you believe you will die without God? You'll die. Unless you come to know his righteousness, you will die. That's the picture Jesus is painting for us. The citizen of the kingdom of heaven sees themselves as needing Jesus' greater righteousness in the same way we need oxygen, the same way we need water and food every day. And if this seems too abstract to you, too sort of theoretical and up here, let me bring it down for you. There are really practical ways, like really, really practical ways that we can either fuel our desire for Jesus or or weaken our desire for him. Really practical ways. For example, uh, we should not be surprised uh, if we read uh, home design magazines all day, uh, watch home renovation shows in the evening, and go to home improvement stores every weekend, if one day we wake up to find that we are entirely unsatisfied with our furniture, right? Entirely uh, unsatisfied with our whole decor. Everything must go. And we won't be happy until our house looks magazine-worthy, right? We get how that works. We fill our imagination with certain things, and we desire, right? You understand, Christ City? It's very, very simple. In the same way, there are practical ways, disciplines even, by which we can stoke the fire of our desire for Jesus' righteousness. Reading our Bibles, praying, confessing sin to one another, gathering each Sunday, listening each Sunday. See, the great joy of setting our minds and hearts towards Jesus' righteousness is the promise of our fourth beatitude. Here's the good news. It's satisfaction. Satisfaction. Righteousness defined, righteousness desired, now righteousness satisfied. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Then he says, for they shall be satisfied. What does he mean? I want us to answer this question in two parts. First, satisfaction now, and then satisfaction later. Satisfaction now and satisfaction later. First, satisfaction now. Again, we're reminded that the Sermon on the Mount wasn't preached so that we might have a sneak peek of how we'll act one day in heaven, right? You know, someday we'll act that way. Someday I'll be that person. But right now I can kind of sit on my hand, do what I want, live my life how I'm supposed to or, or would like to. Right? The sermon was preached, we said this in the very first sermon in the series, to be obeyed, to be lived out, to be applied to our lives. And the satisfaction promised to all those who hunger and thirst for Jesus and his kingdom is that you and I, over time, over time, periodically, uh, in growing in this way, over time, we'll look more and more like kingdom citizens. It's the kind of satisfaction that comes with seeing change in ourselves. That comes with transformation. See, next week, we start looking at Beatitudes like, uh, blessed are the, the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We look at things like, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Part of the satisfaction, hear me, Christ City, that Jesus promises to us is the satisfaction of right now, today, beginning to live differently. Beginning to live differently. Change lives. The satisfaction of bearing fruit. Just this week, I was talking with someone uh, who I've journeyed with a number of years, uh, for a number of years with, 
uh, and they've expressed over these years a desire to grow in patience and love and grace and mercy to their children. And I had the opportunity to tell this person, you know, this desire of yours to grow in this way, a desire for righteousness and not just happiness, right? Just just a, a passable home or a pleasant home, but a desire for righteousness in the home. I've seen you grow into this. I've seen you change. I had the opportunity to encourage them with it. There's satisfaction now. But we know that that satisfaction is ultimately only in part. See, it is true that if we put our faith in Jesus, we are satisfied today. In a cosmic sense, we have been made right with the God of the universe. There is satisfaction today, peace today between you and God, if you put your faith in Jesus today. There is satisfaction in part now, in this glorious way. But we also know that if you're like me at all, man, for me it was just this weekend. It was Friday to Saturday. Where Friday, I've got all the fruit of the Spirit. I am merciful. Friday, I was pure in heart. Friday, I, I was a peacemaker. Right? I was dad of the year. And then Saturday, severe, divisive. It's evil. What's going on? I thought Jesus promised satisfaction. We end this morning by reminding ourselves of the time in which we live, of the days in which we live. A time where Jesus' kingdom is breaking into the world, but has yet to come in full. And so right now, in this time between the time, this age between the ages, that Jesus invites you and me, broken people who act evil at times, people like you and me, to drink deeply of him by his spirit. In John seven thirty seven. Jesus talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Christ City, our invitation in those moments where Friday we're killing it and Saturday we look terrible. Jesus invites us to come and by his Spirit drink deeply of him. To be renewed in him. To again abide in him and trust uh, your promises that are found, his promises that are found in him. In Jesus and in Jesus alone, you are satisfied today. You can be made right with God today. You can begin to live rightly with others today. But the thing about living in Jesus' kingdom and in this world, in this age, at the same time, is that you constantly find your desires and your loves wandering. And even when they're on Jesus, You find that you love him too little. That your desire for him is is too weak. In this fourth beatitude, Jesus is promising with the pursuit of righteousness, eternal satisfaction. Undivided hearts. Desires met. All the longings of our heart received. When? Fully and completely at his return. When he ushers in his kingdom in full. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. It's a great book, The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. And in it, he talks about something uh, that Jesus actually talks a lot about in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Eternal rewards. Eternal rewards. And basically, uh, Lewis says that if we knew, if we knew what sort of satisfaction, what sort of treasure was waiting for us in Jesus' return, we would not waste a, a second turning away from our lowly desires and putting all of them on Jesus. 
Like if we truly know what was waiting for us at Jesus' return, we would not waste a moment loving and longing for these silly, stupid things of this earth. Let me conclude with a quote from The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Then he says, we are far too easily pleased. Christ City, we are far too easily pleased. In view of eternity, in view of Jesus coming back and making all things right, we desire right now, if we're honest, such small and silly things. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.